Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Welcome to this edition of Between the Lines, the podcast that deciphers the handwriting, unfolds faded pages and dips into the details of diaries, logbooks and letters written during this same week, there or thereabouts, in 1943, some 80 years ago. Let's start with a quick recap of the situation. This is, of course, the week in which Operation Chastise took place, 80 years ago. Nineteen bombers took off from RAF Scampton in Lincolnshire for their low-level raid on three dams in the Ruhr Valley, the Myrna, the Ada and the Sorpi, all key structures in Germany's industrial heartland. We'll hear more from Flight Lieutenant Charlie Williams of 617 Squadron shortly. Elsewhere in Europe, the British, French and US were holding a victory parade in Tunis, having routed the Axis forces in North Africa. We are masters of North Africa's shores, signalled General Alexander on the 13th of May, and now more than 250,000 German and Italian troops were in the bag, while a mass of aircraft, tanks, guns, shipping and other war material had been destroyed. Make no mistake, it was a great victory for the Allies and a terrible defeat for the Axis. Next up for the Allies was Sicily. Operation Husky was due to be launched in the second week of July. However, it's also a hive of activity for Axis forces, not least in Rome, where the Germans are beginning to have major doubts their Italian ally has much stomach left for the fight. We'll start by catching up with Dr Wilhelm Maus, a medical officer who's now en route to Rome and a new post as chief medical officer for 14 Panzer Corps, destroyed at Stalingrad, but reforming Phoenix-like in Italy. 19th May 1943. A new order for development suddenly explodes like a bomb in our quiet existence. I was about to ask the chief of staff for a trip to the south of France when all section commanders were told to see him. He told us our staff was being relocated to Italy. Details are not known. We only know the General Hugh will fly directly from the eastern front and report in Rome on the 19th May. The working staff must fly there as soon as possible. The rest of the staff will follow by train. We must get aircraft and equipment as soon as possible to the south of Italy. Wednesday. 19th May, 1943. A flight from Paris to Rome. One can hardly imagine a better experience. Our corps staff are on board. Five officers and officials and about twice the number of NCOs and men. It is easy to see we have moved south now. The rooms have cool stone floors and instead of a uniform jacket, men wear the uniform shirt with shoulder straps. The guards wear tropical helmets and work is done in a shirt. Onward. We cross the Maritime Alps and we are flying in almost easterly direction. The landscape is changing rapidly. It almost becomes spark-like. We see Capri, the Gypsy Island, and then Elba, where Napoleon was in exile for a short period. Now comes Rome, the Eternal City. We land. 
and are told we are not permitted to go out in uniform, not even the Wehrmacht cinema. Why? We don't know. To avoid hostilities or something like that, even though we see this as an insult against our proud uniform. Thursday, 20th May, 1943, 6pm. We get a little more clarity today. Two divisions are forming in Sicily and Sardinia from different German units. They will be on the mainland as well and the German Patzent division is to be moved forward. We do not know what their individual orders are yet. Tactically, this is the medical situation. The largest hospital base is Naples where the medical equipment deposit is. There are smaller medical units in Sicily and in the south of Italy. They will move to Sardinia soon and new units will be formed from the remnants of the Africa Corps medical units and Africa Feldarzretz near Naples. But this is all in the first phase. We do not know where we will end up. Epidemic-wise, things are not as bad as I thought. Malaria is only present in the south and on Sardinia, but it is more and more severe there. Preventative measures are only needed south of Naples. The venereal diseases, on the other hand, seem to be very evil, and syphilis appears often. We must look for civilian clothes, as we are not allowed to visit this beautiful city without them. Our dear brothers in arms do not like to see us, so we must work with tact and patience. In the meantime, we sit soaking in our accommodation and imagine how wonderful Rome could be. Yes, this is where we're going to be for a while. The Sicilian campaign starts ramping up from here on in, but that doesn't mean that Allied troops have left North Africa. There are new recruits to bring into line, retraining and the small matter of what to do with such a huge number of Axis prisoners of war. There's also a chance for many of those involved in the final battles in Tunisia to enjoy a bit of R&R. This change in pace is reflected in many war diaries, official and personal, so we'll just check in briefly with RSM Jack Ward before the focus changes to other theatres, the other side of the Mediterranean and the Far East. May 17th. I've been to Tunis today and then on to Carthage. Saw the Jerry Aerodrome. Hundreds of planes. Jerry has cleared all the ships in Tunis, though. Many civilians given up for dead. Short and to the point as ever, but Jack's observation about civilians is worth thinking about for a moment. These days, what with genealogy databases and more access to the older service records, it's relatively easy to work out the approximate number of men and women who were killed in action. In the North African campaign, for example, the Germans, Italians and Vichy French suffered around 620,000 casualties, while the British Commonwealth lost just over 220,000 men. But civilian casualty numbers are much less accurate because they're simply not recorded in the same way. As we rejoin Major General Oscar Griswold in the South Pacific, we find military casualties are also being recorded carefully in this theatre. The US Army's 14 Corps will soon be engaged in heavy fighting. For now, Griswold is having to cope with enemy raids day and night as he and his corps remain on Guadalcanal in the Eastern Solomons, waiting for their next assignment. 18th May 1943. Good show tonight. Anti-aircraft fired at hostile planes. Quite spectacular. Also, our nightlighters were in action. Didn't get any japs so far as I know. Worse luck. 19th May 1943. Visited Olivugu all day north of Florida. Checked on location of 6-inch Navy gun coast defense battery there. Wednesday evening was worst bombing we've had since arrival in Guadalcanal. The enemy bombed at intervals all night long. 
Casualties reported to date, 6 killed, 12 wounded, 35th Infantry. One bomb type did almost all the damage. It's a so-called grass cutter. Fragments spread laterally and approximately parallel to the ground at point of impact. They have an unmistakable sound when going in our direction, which accelerates movement into one's dugout. Last night, Thursday, was a beautiful moonlight night. Tight fighters, P-38s, searchlights, anti-aircraft all had their innings. Sometimes the anti-aircraft does not fire. On good nights, our fighter planes orbit the field from 20,000 to 30,000 feet. When the enemy plane begins his bombing run, our searchlights go on to illuminate his. The hovering plane then dives on him for the kill. We got two of theirs last night. I had a ringside seat. The P-38 caught him a blast of red tracer bullets and 37 cannon was clearly visible. The enemy plane took fire and tried to escape. The P-38 made a second pass. This time he exploded. The plane came apart in two flaming sections. Could hear cheers from all around the blacked-out camp area. War is surely here. A cheer because a man is falling or burning to death? It's all in the game, I guess. He was the SOB who got some of our men, so he asked for it. I expect we'll have some more of the SOBs tonight. A change of pace for a moment. On the other side of the world, things are a lot less hectic. News is coming in about recent events in North Africa, and there's a lifting of the spirits in general all around. Let's go to Notting Hill to hear from Veer Hodgson and find out how people are reacting to that news. Watching newsreels, reading the newspapers, reflecting on how far the war has come and how far there is still to go. Sunday, 16th of May. Wonderful week of news. Mr Churchill reminded us it's like the Seven Years' War in Chatham's time. Each morning, one had to get up early to inquire for victories in case of missing one. Every day, German prisoners have mounted, with guns, food and equipment. Total collapse. And we hear General von Arnim is in England, a prisoner. He surrendered with great ceremony, saluting all his officers. It seems an Indian regiment finally took him. What a time for our boys. They'll tell their grandchildren with pride and joy. Poor General de Gaulle. He should have been the one to enter Tunis in triumph. It rather seems that, if he appeared in Algiers, the people would go mad with joy. Anyway, he ought to be the first to enter Paris. Our boys are walking over the land of ancient Carthage, though not a trace remains of that civilization. Cartagio de Landa Est. I really feel this Tunis business has avenged not only Dunkirk, but Singapore as well. We could not be told on how little information it was all founded. Or the Germans would have known too. The Paris radio refers to the desert as the Promenade des Anglais, and in the newsreel the Italians look depressed and miserable. Our boys, maimed on or on stretchers, are always wreathed in smiles. I shall never forget our disappointments of last year and my little faith. Those days are over, and we can take heart once more. But it has been a near thing. In another 25 years, I don't think we shall have a second chance. We shall sink at once if we are not ready. It seems we must go on to the end of time, armed to the teeth. 
The Italians are in a state of panic, I expect. And Barashnikov says Mussolini will die by internal explosion. It is reported that the king is off to South America. Went to the review of the Home Guard in Hyde Park. A glorious afternoon. All the units were assembling. Men of all shapes and sizes. Some with glasses, some fat, some thin. But all are ready to do or die. And we are most grateful to them. Mr Churchill reminded us that three years ago the Home Guard had scarcely anything but their own fist to fight with. A few had old guns and a little ammunition. Yet in 1940, all were prepared to do what they could. I remember it well. The authorities expected a few thousand. Instead, innumerable thousands lined up at all the police stations to register. Innumerable thousands joined the Home Guard, says Fear. For the time being, the general feeling in Britain is one of growing confidence, but most realise the war is far from done and dusted yet. Germany's cities are taking a pounding. The Allies have won in North Africa, but there's clearly plenty of fighting to come. Yet Britain is a hive of activity, and not least in its shipyards where new vessels are being built and others having much-needed refits. Back on the Clyde, HMS Warspite is undergoing her own short makeover, and Captain Bertie Packer is taking the opportunity for a few days' leave. He doesn't know where his ship will sail to next, but by the looks of things, it's likely to be the Mediterranean. As we'll hear in just a moment, the Warspite is being fitted with new Ehrlichens, 20mm anti-aircraft cannons, capable of firing more than 600 rounds per minute. One of the Ehrlichens' advantages was that it needed no external power or cooling supply and could be bolted down almost anywhere and fired by almost anyone. But anywhere on a ship isn't straightforward, and Bertie does have views on how many Ehrlichens he actually needs. Saturday the 15th of May. Off on leave. Had breakfast with Phil Glover, who is off to Washington. Very upset, he is, because they won't give him another ship. He has only had six months in command, although he's been afloat for seven years as captain. And so there it is. This means he will never become a rear admiral. Knocked out in the semi-final, as he put it. Thanks to Major Gay and Miss Packer, I got a room at the Athenaeum Court. During my leave, played a lot of golf at Liphook. Lunched at the house with Bax and Critchley. Saw Petty Officer A.P. Herbert at the next table, looking very untidy in P.O.'s uniform, with two very smart-looking naval cadets from Dartmouth. Had a good visit to Admiralty, though, where I had a long, profitable talk with W.R. Patterson, A.C.N.S.W., a very old friend of mine. We are increasing our Ehrlichons up to 31 barrels, but this will only keep aircraft out to 1,500 yards or so. I pointed out that I was concerned at having only two twin four-inch AA guns each side, and one director each side, a two-sided ship instead of a four-cornered one. He agreed, and at the first opportunity I think I'll get four twins and two directors on each side and do away with my six-inch. Meanwhile, I must be ready to sail by the first of June. I don't know where we are to go, but first of all we're off to Scapper to work up the force for an operation against the enemy. I can only imagine we are to have a crack at Sardinia, or Sicily, or Italy. All conversation now, everywhere, after our Tunisian victory, is about where will our next blow fall, and there is tremendous air heat being out on Italy. Anyway, 
We are keeping to our timetable. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back with more from Between the Lines in just a moment. Let's now go to Germany, where Lieutenant Heinz Nocker is determined to keep his Messerschmitt in the air as much as possible, fending off more Allied attacks on the submarine pens at Kiel. He's desperately trying to get to grip with some frustrating changes in the Americans' bomber flight formation tactics, and he too must spend time with Germany's own fleet, with short flights offering protection in convoy escort patrols. May 15th, 1943. The Americans repeated their attack of yesterday on Kiel. I could take only live aircraft into the air, as nearly all our planes had holes in them when they arrived home. We intercept the enemy formation of the St. Peter Peninsula before it is over the mainland. The only one of our bombs to register is that dropped by Flight Sergeant Lennartz, but one of the fortresses goes down. Twice I tried to carry out an attack on one of the enemy formations. The Americans take evasive action by means of a sort of weaving flight. That makes an accurate frontal attack very difficult. Giving me only three or four seconds perfect timing is essential because of the terrific closing speed. When we add our own speed to the enemy's, at an altitude of 25,000 feet, it's more than 600 miles per hour. Finally, I succeed in getting at one of the fortresses on the outer flank. The inside right engine takes a hit, but the fortress simply closes in and slides into the well-protected center of the formation. Another frontal attack produces no result either, and I narrowly escape a collision with the huge tail unit of one of the Americans. The rudder alone is as big as the entire wingspan of my ME-109. It seems to be one of those days when every blasted thing goes wrong. I lose sight of the fortress I started to shoot up. By this time I simply could not care less. I dive steeply from behind, coming at another fortress at the tail end of the formation. At last my firing begins to have some effect. The two left engines begin smoking. The Yank loses height rapidly. Once he is out of the formation, it's all over. I fasten on behind his tail, blaze away with everything I got. Bright flames spread along the belly. All ten members of the crew bail out. The parachutes hang in the sky like washing on some invisible clothesline, while the giant plane goes down, trailing a long column of smoke in a pilotless spin, falling out of control, and finally disintegrating in its descent. I make a note of the crash. May 18th, 1943. As well as our operations against the heavy bomber formations, we also fly on convoy escort patrols out at sea. In this way, I complete my 200th operational mission. May 19th, 1943, I bring down my 7th heavy bomber. An intruder on reconnaissance at a high altitude above Heligoland gets away from me in the afternoon. I am unable to make a positive identification. It's probably a lightning. Back to the Middle East. It seems as though Corporal Harry Wilson has settled in well to his work as a cipher clerk, He's finished his exams and training and is now handling important coded messages, day and night. He has heard the news about the recent bombing of the Italian island of Pantelleria, which lies between Tunisia and Sicily. 
He's also seeing the kinds of changes that tend to happen regularly as large campaigns roll round, one into the other. Changes of personnel, new commanding officers. However, a new CO isn't what's keeping him up at night. Just like last week, the main focus of Harry's attention is still one of the least exciting aspects of life in the British Army. The rules, the regulations, and mind-numbing routine for the laying out of kit. Saturday 15th, Captain Lee returned from a cipher course in Cairo. He was humble about his performance, would you believe? Well, I wasn't last, he told Tregascus. There was one fellow worse than me, but we all passed. Pantoyaris has been bombarded by the Royal Navy. Sicily and Italy heavily bombed too. The King of Italy has taken over the supreme command of the Italian forces. And Marshal Badoglio has been recalled to command the armies in South Italy. Sunday 16th. Worked until four this morning. Joe Blackburn and Corporal French kept up a continuous chatter. Blackburn is an ex-RA lad and regards meticulous layout of kit as a supreme military virtue. He took great offence when I told him to go to hell for criticising mine. Cyphers has a bad name on this account. However, unlike Blackburn, I am proud of the fact. Monday 17th. We met the new CO today. A big heavy man with a bushy moustache. He looked anything but debonair. He looked at us silently for a while and then said, You can smoke if you want to. Judging by the fumes that followed, everybody wanted to. The speech began. I've brought you all here to speak to you and introduce myself. It serves two purposes. First, so that you'll be able to recognise me outside and give me the dues to which I am entitled. And by the way, if anyone wants to know my name, it's Sir. Secondly, if I want to see you, he peered closely at us. Owing to the crowd, I can't see the faces of half of you. I thought he was going to say, owing to the smoke. I rather liked him, if one can talk of liking a colonel in the army. Told us his name was Whitby Wilkinson. From what I've seen of you so far, he said. Well, I liked the turnout of the party who picked me up, but I didn't enjoy the fact my car ran out of petrol on that journey. Okay, we gave him a laugh at that point. Tuesday 18th, evening concert. A party of RASC artists called the Rascals. All men. Very enjoyable. Friday 21st, more billet trouble. Yesterday the orderly expressed his dissatisfaction and this morning Captain Lee in CSM Hardcastle dropped in unexpectedly to persuade us to do better. I politely pointed out that my bed sagged in the middle owing to the fact I slept in it every night and I suggested, not without sarcasm, that it might be used solely for kit display, in which event I would be quite willing to sleep on the floor in future. I then assured them that my bed would be made up as per the chart in the morning. Of course, what he didn't tell him was that I also knew I'd be on my way to Jerusalem in the morning with Joe Blackburn. Good old Harry. He's definitely keeping a good sense of humour. OK, usually we'd come back to Britain now, to Edinburgh, to check in with Julia Blythe. If you're a regular listener, then you'll know we get updates from Ma every week, as she stays in touch with her son, 22-year-old Flight Lieutenant David Nairn Blythe. However, this week, it looks as though Mars' letters have gone astray. So let's cross the Atlantic instead, to Port Albert, where Flight Lieutenant Blythe is studying hard for his exams. The classroom sessions are quite intense, but David and his colleagues are getting plenty of time in the air too. 16th May. Dear Ma, delighted to receive your letter. They seem to play some games with the post around here. However, the main thing is, they got here. It's too bad the little blue budgie died, you know. It was such a cute little thing. 
You will miss it, I'm sure. You must get another one. Frank and I went to see Aunt Jean again over the weekend, and we had a super duper time. We had some photographs taken the first time we went, and they've turned out okay. I think Aunt Jean will be able to send them on to you. You asked if I'll get a commission. Well, I don't know. Believe me, they give a commission to almost anyone they want to, regardless of many things. You see, there are a thousand marks for personal assessment, and they can juggle around with that to suit themselves. You know how it is. I'm doing okay, though, in the air and on the ground, and I believe in destiny. If I'm going to be an officer, I'll be one. Whatever the result, I'll be happy, because I've learned by this time how to get the best out of everything. I'm due in the air soon, ma, and so for the present I'll say cheerio. Please give my regards to everyone. Love and good health to all. David. P.S. I have now got a grand total of just over 100 flying hours. At the start of this episode, we mentioned this is the week in which the Dambusters take to the skies. Operation Chastise is only possible when the skies are clear with the full moon and the conditions come right on the night of the 16th of May 1943. One of the men taking part in these sorties was Flight Lieutenant Charlie Williams, our 33-year-old Australian wireless operator. Charlie came to Britain in 1942. He spent a short amount of time with 61 Squadron and then moved over to join the recently formed 617 Squadron under Wing Commander Guy Gibson at RAF Scampton. The men have been training for weeks, low-level flying over lakes around the country. The mission is complicated, the training relentless. There's not much room for leave, and this is especially hard for Charlie, who is now writing letters almost every day to a young woman called Gwen Partfit. Darling Bobby, he calls her. They haven't known each other long, but it's clear the young couple have fallen madly in love. This midnight flight to the German heartland will be Charlie's last mission before he gets some well-earned time off, and the couple plans to get married just as soon as they can. May 15th. My darling Bobby, I received two letters today. So glad to have heard from you. There's so much I'd like to tell you, but of course, I simply cannot. You say I'm a lucky person, and I think you're right. I've got a charming and lovely girl who writes to me, and I only wish I could get in and see her. I will try and ring you tomorrow. I'm very glad you were there for the take-off and the return, darling. Now you realise what a strain we're under the whole time, even without the actual operations. You have an idea of how we feel every time our pals fail to return. We get hardened to it, but I can't help feeling depressed every time some of them fail to come back. Many of the chaps I know well. There are many more of them flying out of every RAF station in the land. May 16th. My darling Bobby. Well, darling, I'm very sorry I wasn't able to get in tonight. I was very disappointed, but also at not having been able to contact you. I couldn't ring you after four o'clock as I was so busy. I'm almost sure I'll be able to be in on Monday or Tuesday night, but whatever happens, I will phone you and let you know. When I do see you, I hope that I can explain why I haven't been able to get in, and I'm quite sure that you will then realise it's been absolutely impossible for me to see you during the past two weeks, except for the one night I did come over and could not find you. There's a big chance I may have to go home sooner than I expect, and if I do, then I may not be able to give you more than a few days' notice, but I will try and let you know. When I do, my darling, I hope that you are able to get home also so that we can get married. I'll have a lot to tell you when I do see you, darling. I can only hope it will be very soon because I've missed you an awful lot and it seems ages since I saw you last. Believe me when I say I love you dearly and always will. 
All my love dear and kisses too. Charles. From the Royal Australian Air Force, Overseas Headquarters, London. Dear Miss Puffett, With reference to your letter, it is deeply regretted to advise you that, almost currently with the receipt of your letter by this headquarters, information was received through the International Red Cross Committee at Geneva to the effect the German authorities have now reported Flying Officer Williams and all the members of his crew lost their lives on the 16th of May 1943. Unfortunately, there is little reason to doubt the accuracy of such report. Accordingly, for official purposes, Flying Officer Williams is now classified as missing, believed killed in action. The Royal Australian Air Force and this headquarters expresses the deepest sympathy to you in the loss of Flying Officer Williams. Yours faithfully, W.N. Melville, Squadron Leader. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We do hope you found a little insight and were briefly entertained as we were reading Between the Lines. Between the Lines is a We Have Ways production. Julia Mar Blythe is read by Ruth Sillers. David Blythe is read by Matthew Malthouse. Oscar Griswold is read by Michael Lyons. Chester Hansen is read by Lance Fuller. Veer Hodgson is read by Rachel Holland. Heinz Knocker is read by Lucas Veschler. Bertie Packer is read by Paul Waggett. Jack Ward is read by Adam Jarrell. Harry Wilson is read by Joel Emery. Narration is by James Holland and Al Murray. Editing by John Gill and Joey McCarthy. Written and produced by Merrin Walters. The executive producer is Tony Pastor. <laughs>